The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, joining me this morning is Dr. Natalie Strand. She's the author of A Woman's Guide to Diabetes, A Path to Wellness. Uh, Dr. Strand is the medical director at Freedom Pain Hospital, and she maintains in her book, and we're going to be talking to her in a few minutes, that not all diabetes-related issues are strictly medical. Um, After years of living with diabetes, she and her co-author, who is an MSW and founder of CEO of Diabetes Sisters, uh, in their book bring a frank, practical, and personal perspective to a number of challenging issues surrounding diabetes, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Strand, or Dr. Nat, I guess, as they call you. <laughs> well, I'll answer to either, but thank you very much. It's absolutely a pleasure to be on the show and, and you know, spread a little bit of information and support about diabetes, so I really appreciate the opportunity. Great. Well, it's uh, obviously it's an important topic, and maybe and I know you were diagnosed with diabetes, type 1 diabetes, when you were a teenager. Uh, I know now we have an epidemic of type 2 diabetes uh, in this country, which is a lot of it's related to obesity and, and other factors. But I also want to mention, and I guess I didn't mention this in the opening, but you um, were the winner um, of the, you took the 32,000 mile journey um, uh, on the amazing race which was this, I, I'm not sure exactly which year it was, but you were, what, one of the first female groups to have won the Amazing Race, this CBS um, program? Well, actually, we were the first team of women to ever win. Um, we were on season 17, so quite a few seasons ago now. It's been a few years. But um, one of my very best friends, who's also a physician, and I competed on the show and became the first women to win. But for me, of course, competing as someone living with diabetes was even more important than competing as a woman because I I knew that being on a show like The Amazing Race, and if you're not familiar with it, you know, there's so many variables, um, you know, food challenges and physical challenges and logistical challenges, and you're in a new time zone every 24 hours. And I knew that if I could do that with diabetes, that it would be a wonderful example and it would reach a lot of people to show that, you know, we all have challenges with diabetes, but we certainly don't have limitations. And so it was a really wonderful opportunity for me to get that message out there. Yeah, and I think obviously that's what you've done through the book, but I also think, Dr. Nat, that people do sometimes, we kind of pinpoint 
um, what a condition or a disease, and we think, oh, it is a medical condition, and let's say diabetes, you take your insulin, you regulate your insulin, then everything's fine, and that's okay, and you, you go on with your life. But that's really not true. And so, I mean, and that's what you talk about in your book, and that's what I really I want to discuss, all the issues that this, you know, being diagnosed with diabetes when you're a teenager has all kinds of ramifications, you know. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I spend a lot of times that diabetes can be a very lonely condition because people have all heard about it and they're exactly what you said, very quick to say, oh, but you're healthy. Oh, but you're well controlled. And it's almost like they need to make themselves feel like it's not that big of a deal because it's easier for them to cope with it. So for someone living with it, you're left with the day in, day out management of a chronic disease. And so in our book, we really address not only the medical side of diabetes, but also the way that it affects everything else in your life because it really is important to acknowledge that part, the part that leads to depression or burnout or anxiety. And um, we just want people to know that that's very real. And even though it's a little bit of an invisible part of diabetes, it doesn't make it any less important. All right. Well, let's start with you. You're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. You're a teenager. And when is that? Like 20, 25 years ago. So what, well, how did you, what happened? How did you, first of all, what were the symptoms? And second of all, here you are, a teen, teenager's really, I mean, that's a very vulnerable period, I think, in any woman's life, any young girl's life. So what happened? I mean, how did that, how did you, well, I guess, come for, to the diagnosis? And let's start with that. For me, you know, a little bit of, of ignorance is bliss as it play because it was the summer between sixth and seventh grade for me. And I knew what it was. I happened to have a friend who was uh, type 1, uh, who was living with type 1 diabetes. So, I, you know, I like a lot of people, oh, she gives herself a couple shots a day. It's, you know, that's it. It didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. Now, for me, the hardest part of the diagnosis was actually a few years later when I was in medical school. As I was learning in depth all of the details that go along with diabetes and the long-term outcomes. And it, it seems like no news is good news at certain points. You know, you're just hearing yeah. all these possibilities. And so um, for me in high school and college, I don't think I really took it all that seriously. I mean, I did enough to get by, but I didn't really embrace it with a mature adult attitude. And so what did it wasn't you have until to do? I, mean, I was a little bit older time. that I actually realized the significance to... of the diagnosis. I, I missed it because I kind of interrupted you. I was asking you a question. Um, when you were diagnosed, though, you say, okay, it didn't really affect you until you were in medical school because, like, you didn't really have that much information. But still, here you are in middle school, high school. Uh, did you have to give your sh- yourself shots twice a day, three times a day? I mean, I don't think it, the, uh, the process of, of taking care of yourself is quite as sophisticated as it is today, I'm assuming. But, um, well, yeah, so, you know, as soon as I was diagnosed, I was introduced to the world of uh, blood glucose testing, so I would prick my finger four to six times a day to test my blood sugar level, and then I was on uh, multiple daily injections, so I was doing between three and five injections of insulin every day. Um, you know, the, the little ways in which it changes things, you know, going to the nurse's office before lunch at school or... I mean, I'll share this. I thought this was kind of fun. I was one of the first girls to carry a purse because I carried my glucose tablets in case I had to treat a low blood sugar. I carried my insulin and syringes. Um, So I had that with me everywhere I went. I always had a purse with me, which I thought was fun at the time. (laughs) Well, how was that for dating? I mean, like, what you know, that's the age when you start to date and you go out with guys and stuff. So was it a badge of 
encourage or was it like an impediment or, you know, how did that work? Because it does affect your relationships and you talk about that in the book, obviously, your intimate relationships, your sexual relationships. So start with like, you know, beginning you start to date and how do, how do you handle it? How did you handle it? You know, that's an interesting question, especially at that age. Um, before I was on the insulin pump, you know, there was really nothing physically that would give away that I had diabetes other than, you know, at mealtime. So really that didn't come into play too much. If I went on a date with someone and I would maybe go to the restroom to, to do my injection and come back to dinner and it was fine. Now I did, you know, teach people, including, you know, a boyfriend or friends how to do a glucagon shot because if every I passed out from a low blood sugar, I wanted whoever I was with to feel like they at least had a basic understanding of what to do. But once I went on an insulin pump, there was a bit of a transition because now all of a sudden I had something on my body that was, like you say, not necessarily a badge of courage, but it was a constant reminder that, you know, there was something else going on. So I think once you make the transition to wearing an insulin pump, it does come into play, you know, when you're intimate or when you're introducing yourself to someone because everybody wants to know what it is and what you can do with it or if you can take it off, things like that. Did you ever have any situations where someone was uh, didn't want to be with you because you had diabetes or you had an insulin pump? You know, I mean, were there any situations, uh, you know, I, I, that you felt like someone rejected you because of it? No, um, I can say that, you know, I was, I was in college when I got my insulin pump, but I was worried about that. I, I was a little timid to show it to people at first, and I, I kind of just wondered if it would make a difference, but... Like many things in life, if you sort of own it, it almost becomes a positive thing. Um, my husband now tells me that one of the things he really was impressed with me off the bat was on our first date, I pulled out my pump, I showed it to him, and he said, oh, you were so confident, you were so, you know, into it, and it just showed me that you had a, a really good level of confidence. And so in that scenario, at least it was a positive. But I certainly, you know, there was a transition where you're kind of like, how are people going to react to this? And, you know, but I, I think as long as you sort of own it and you're proud of it, uh, people will kind of respond in the same way. Yeah. So they'll react in the same way that you're responding to it. If you own up and I mean, you, that's, you own it. I think that's so important. Um, and probably people who don't do that have the most, obviously the most difficulty if you're hiding, you know, I guess the opposite of that is hiding or pretending. Um, and so you do want to own up to who you are. So, all right. So you own up to it. It doesn't seem to be that it was like a huge issue for you in terms of dating and intimate relationships and stuff like that, but where else, like you're a diabetic, how else does that affect your life? What, you know, what other areas besides being a medical issue that you always have to obviously uh, attend to? I mean, so what other areas in one's life if you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, for instance? I mean, I, I think it would be hard to find an area of my life that wasn't affected by living with diabetes. Um, you know, it certainly affects family dynamics. It affects relationship dynamics. It, it You bring it to you to the workplace. So, to be a little bit more specific, I mean, it's part of who you are and what you live with. So there's not a scenario that I think diabetes doesn't play into at all in my life. 
When you talk about relationships, you said family relationships, work relationships, specifically in, in terms of the family, because, you know, I'm a social worker. I work with families, or I have in the past, and, you know, families, each one, they're all affected with whatever is um, one family member is engaged in the whole family uh, is, is, is part of it, you know, the family dynamics, and that's what you're talking about. So, like, in your own Give us an example. I mean, how did it affect your family, both either your family of origin and your family now, uh, you and your husband? Well, you know, um, as, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, whenever a child has an illness or a chronic condition, it, it can put a lot of stress on the marriage of the parents. Um, and I think the parents might have a sense of either responsibility or anxiety. So... For me, when I was first diagnosed, you know, my mom was coming into my room twice a night to test my blood sugar to wake me up to make sure I was okay. And you can imagine a 13-year-old girl, I, I wasn't too excited about my mom coming in my room every night and bugging me. So, you know, there's a layer of, of stress there. And, of course, if you have a sibling, all of a sudden so much attention is on the one child. And so it can lead to a little you know, exacerbation of sibling rivalry or maybe a sibling feeling left out. And, of course, you know, for the parents, it's very tough because you're balancing this line between empowerment and responsibility. So you want to teach your, at least in my family, there was a balance of wanting to teach me that it wasn't going to hold me back, that I could still do whatever I wanted, that I didn't need to hinder my dreams at all. Yet, you do need to make sure you test your blood sugar, you do need to eat according to your meal plan because these very serious things might happen. So there's there's just a lot that goes into parenting a child living with diabetes. And as, as we talk about diabetes at type 2 and type 1 in, in my family now and my role as a wife and a soon-to-be mom, um, you know, oftentimes spouses want to help and they don't know how. So they may end up being the diabetes police, you know, oh, you can't eat that. Why are you eating that? Why aren't you exercising more? which can lead to a, a feeling of shame for the person living with diabetes and also some resentment, too. So, you know, the partners need to find out how to give support and how to receive support in a way that's constructive and not a way that is actually going to be destructive to the family dynamics. So um, it's a very interesting play into a marriage and, and you know, every partner has a different level of engagement, a different level of personal responsibility. Some people are very involved in their partner's diabetes. Other people kind of feel like that's their thing. My job is just to not bug them about it. And so there's a whole variety of the way that it can interplay into a household and into a married relationship. So would you say, uh, Natalie, there's, there's no formula. It depends on your relationship, each individual unique relationship. And I guess the next question is, would you recommend... Uh, counseling, for uh, for instance, because you've mentioned so many issues that, I mean, just, you know, if you don't have diabetes, let's say that you don't have a, a, a necessarily a health problem, uh, there are all these issues come up anyway. And so, you know, it layered with, with being, you know, having a, uh, being diabetic and having to attend to all that you've been talking about. Do you recommend counseling? Did you have to go to counseling? And then, secondly, now you're pregnant, you said, soon to be mom? Yes, I am. <laughs> Doing much. <laughs> So that has to have a whole, you know, that's another thing. I mean, being pregnant, I would assume. So I guess start answer the first one, though, uh, about do you recommend counseling for, for couples or did you go into counseling? Was that necessary or you were able to work out all this stuff with your husband without it? 
You know, I, I think counseling is great. Um, and I think that if a couple is open to it, you know, definitely get involved. And I think if counseling is almost, you know, for some people it might be intimidating or too big, as long as you address the issue and you acknowledge it, you know, I think even a simple conversation between couples of how, how can I best help you? Is, is what I'm doing helpful or is it sort of driving you away from me? Because I want to help and I don't really know how. Even that simple conversation. But there's so many resources. I mean, we certainly address this in the book. There's a wonderful online community with diabetes. Uh, I certainly do support counseling a lot. I, I think it is very, very helpful for the individual as well as for the couple. So I would say it, it doesn't really matter the form as long as you sort of are aware that this can affect you personally and affect you in relationships and that you reach out for support, whether that's educating yourself through a self-help book, connecting with other people in similar situations in, in an online group or going to see a counselor. I think any one of those is going to be able to offer a lot of support and information that's going to be very helpful. All right, so I hear you saying, I mean, key is open communication. You need to be Absolutely. able to communicate. Communicate and take responsibility for yourself and your body and I think you mentioned, you know, it's not your husband or your partner's responsibility or your child or your mother. You have to take care of yourself. You have to know who you are, and you have to, it, it's your responsibility to, to take care of yourself. I think that's really important. And then communicate that to others. Okay, but now you're pregnant. Now, pregnancy in itself, I've been pregnant. I've had three kids, um, so I know what that entails. And then on top of that, you have diabetes. What are some of the issues that come up? Well, you know, all of a sudden you're living with diabetes and it's affecting, you know, you and your unborn child. So it's a whole other level of engagement in diabetes. Uh, the parameters with which you want to keep your blood sugars are much stricter than they are when you're not carrying a child because of the risks of things, you know, that, that may affect your child. So it, it's been a very interesting experience. This is my first pregnancy. It's certainly engaged me in diabetes in a whole new way. And I think I also relate to people living with type 2 diabetes more than I ever have because as you <clears throat> progress in your pregnancy, the placenta makes a lot of hormones that are anti-insulin. So not only am I living with type 1 in which I'm dependent on outside insulin to live, but my body is not very responsive to the insulin that I do get. So it's very hard for me to eat carbohydrates. It's difficult for me. I need to change my insulin dosing, you know, all the time now that I'm in the third trimester. So I... I feel like I'm living with type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, and it's, it's a good experience for me because, you know, to be in someone else's shoes and understand how much food affects what you're doing and how hard it is when you don't respond to insulin, um, it, it's, a, it's a quite a challenge. So food, nutrition, I mean, that's key. I mean, you, you talk about that in the book. Uh, and, and I was I'm assuming, I don't know, maybe it's easier, it could be easier for you because you are a physician. So you kind of maybe have one step up on most people because you are in the field, in the medical field. You know, I, I think on an education um, level, yes, and, and understanding medical jargon, being able to read studies, um, those kinds of things are very helpful. But on, on another level, you know, I'm still a pregnant woman with cravings who's kind of tired of testing her blood sugar 12 times a day. So, How many months you know, I think are you? It's very real on that level, too. Uh, now, how many months pregnant are you? I'm eight months pregnant. Eight months pregnant. So, And do they expect you to go to full term? Uh, I mean, that's the expectation? or 
Yes. Um, I'm entering the phase of doing twice-weekly testing, so I'll do a biophysical profile and a non-stress test twice a week, and we'll just monitor the baby very closely. But if if I continue to stay in good control and there are no unforeseen events, then, yes, they absolutely expect me to go to full term. Well, congratulations. Very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. You know, I've appreciated um, as In the book, Brandy and I kind of switch off chapters, and there's, you know, there's an icon of saying whose voice is speaking for each chapter, and Brandy actually wrote the chapter on pregnancy, because I hadn't been through it yet, so I was very appreciative to have, have the book and even read her chapter for myself um, during this pregnancy, because there's, there's nothing like someone who's been through it, as, as you know, and so I think relating to that has been wonderful for me. This is kind of switching gears a little bit, but, you know, one of the other things in this, obviously, in the amazing race was exacerbated because most of us don't take a 32,000-mile trip. But (laughs) but I'm one who travels all over the world, and I thought about it when I was um, thinking about interview. I knew I was going to interview you this morning, but traveling must be a huge issue. I mean, I just got back from Southeast Asia, and I, I think of all the things that, we needed to do to accommodate ourselves in terms of what we eat and how we ate and all those kinds of what was ate, we were able to eat in terms of, you know, so we wouldn't get sick. But if you, you know, if you had a condition uh, like diabetes, it would really exacerbate the whole thing. How do you handle that? I mean, when you're traveling, because um, I think that must be an issue for many people. Uh, I, I think it's all about the planning. I mean, if you if you really spend a good deal of time planning, then the trip should go off without a hitch. But I always make sure to have documentation in the language of the country that I'm traveling to that says I have diabetes, this is my insulin pump, this is why I need syringes, because you never know. Someone might stop you in customs and, and be confused about what you have or heaven forbid you lose your stuff while you're there and you need to be able to communicate with someone in detail about your condition. So um, I, I do always take a translation with me that states my medical history and why I'm traveling with those things. If I'm going to be doing a lot of walking or if there's going to be significant time changes, I do build that into my plan. Um, so if you're living with diabetes and you're on medication, you're going to have to change the timing of that medication. Most people on vacation eat out more, and so those of us that have very sensitive diets, you're going to have to either bring a lot with you that you can snack on uh, that's a familiar food, or you're going to have to do a little bit of advanced planning on what types of foods you're going to eat while you're there. So there, there is a lot of planning. I mean, even if, for example, I love to go to the mountains and ski, but I need a plan for my insulin not to freeze and how I'm going to keep my insulin pump working and my blood glucose monitor warm enough. I also like to scuba dive, so then you kind of need a plan about how you're going to keep things dry and handle it on a boat. So whatever you're going to do, as long as you plan for it in advance, I think it's, it's definitely doable and it can go off without a hitch, but it's a little harder to be, um, you know, last minute and fly by the seat of your pants because you don't want to run out of insulin while you're gone. You don't want to have your pump, you know, be submerged in water while you're out of the country, things like that. So you do have to do a little bit of planning. Before. Do you ever feel resentful? Do you ever feel like, here I am, I just want to go scuba diving, I just want to go skiing, and I don't want to have to think about all of this. Uh, you know, I'm young, I, you know, I have the energy, I want to get out there, I want to travel where I want to be, and I don't want to have to do all this planning. And, and, and I and get depressed. And I don't mean a clinical depression, but there are times when, you know, that kind of why me thing, does that come up? Absolutely. And even the clinical depression. I mean, living with a chronic disease does increase the rates of depression for people. And 
there are certainly times where I'm not as positive and I'm just frustrated and I just want to do what I want to do and not carry this, you know, gorilla with me everywhere I go. Um, and I find in those times it's, it's really important to have some strength and positivity around you because it's easy to go down the rabbit hole, you know, <laughs> and, and, and throw yourself a pity party. And sometimes this just happens and you just go down that hole and you come out and you're okay for another, you know, bit of time. And, you know, for me, my family, my friends, the women in my life who live with type 1 diabetes, you know, I, I think it's, it's wonderful to just share the burden with other people. And they can carry a little bit of it for you when you're feeling down or you're feeling burnt out. And then you pick yourself back up and you go at it again. But absolutely, I, I do have those feelings and um, I think they're very normal. Yeah, the feelings are normal, and you can say, okay, these are normal feelings, but you know, I guess what you said, like you need a support group, whatever your one support group happens to be, girlfriends, uh, whoever it is, but to be able to call somebody up who understands what you're going through. I mean, to me, it would seem that would be really an important piece of the whole thing, of being able to get out of that rabbit hole. Yes, and and I would encourage anybody who lives with diabetes um, to find someone else who really knows what it's like, because... Sometimes you might want the person to be your husband or your sister or your parents, but unless they really live with it, it's just going to be very, very hard for them to empathize with you, you know, really in detail. So if you, if you have friends that have diabetes or, you know, like Brandy's group, Diabetes Sisters, which is a, a group to just bring us together, um, I, I think that I've always found it to be very powerful because you, you don't have to explain it all. So you get out of that whining thing where you feel like you're complaining. You don't need to complain. Everybody else kind of lives it too. And so you can just sort of go to a place where you feel like you're at home and you're amongst people that understand and that get it. And I think that's a really incredible support system um, that's special in a different way than people that love you but don't live with diabetes. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I wonder, are there any times in your life where um, – well, you felt discriminated against. I was thinking about, I had read her autobiography, Sonia uh, Sotomayor, our Supreme Court Justice, who has type 1 mm-hmm. diabetes. And I guess one of the things when before she was appointed was there was a concern whether she'd be able to handle the job because of her condition. Um, and, you know, that was there was a lot, you know, they kind of talked it through on the news and in the media and stuff. So I wondered, I mean, you as a physician, have you ever... Um, experienced any kind of uh, uh, situation where you felt that you were discriminated against because of your disease? Not that I know of. In fact, um, when I was applying to medical school, I wrote my essay about living with diabetes, and I had my college counselor said, don't do that because they may not want to take you for that reason, and, and I just chose to do it anyway. So I don't know if it's me. I'm very upfront about it. I'm very proud of it. I, I definitely view living with diabetes as something that's given me a lot of assets as far as determination, perseverance. So um, I don't know if it's just me the way I presented it or if I've missed a couple of things, but no, I, I've never felt that it's it's been limiting to me in any way that's that's been perceptible. Yeah, you know, well, I think well, what you just said, and I think this is what the message in the book, too, is that um, you have to own it. And when you own it, everybody else is going to own it, too. And, uh, you know, I go back to that thing. I think when you, if you feel ashamed, if you hide, um, you know, if you have that kind of an attitude, then that sort of, you know, generalizes to the people that you are connected with. So you've got to own it and take responsibility for yourself. I guess that just keeps 
that's the well, that's yeah, a that's, that's a wonderful point because I myself have limited things. You know, I don't want to be high maintenance, or I didn't want to be. Um, I didn't want anyone to see that diabetes was hard for me in that moment. So maybe I wouldn't test as often. Maybe I wouldn't make the dietary request. And so personally, I think I've I've been in situations where you you don't try to hide it, but you maybe try to downplay it and be. You know, like, oh, no, that's okay, we can eat anywhere. No, it's okay if we wait two hours to eat when really it's not okay. Um, And so that's something as I've gotten older and become a little bit more, um, you know, aware of self-care and a little less, you know, more aware of the women tend to want to people please and that really you have to kind of stand up for yourself and say, no, I need to eat at this restaurant, I need to eat at this time, I I can't do that right now. Um, The more comfortable I've gotten with that, the more I've been able to prioritize self-care. And I, I think that's something that's a struggle for a lot of women. Yeah, well, I think, as you say, as you get older and you have more experience uh, in, you know, in handling your diabetes and relationships, and then you become more confident and you are able to do that. Then I, um, I think that's true probably with most illnesses, you know, um, mental or physical. So um, I want to, you know, we only have a couple minutes left, so I do want to mention the book again, obviously, A Woman's Guide to Diabetes, A Path to Wellness. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Um, Also, websites we can go to, your websites, other websites that you would recommend for, do we say persons with diabetes? Is that uh, politically correct? (laughs) Yes, people with diabetes. um, I, I would say that the American Diabetes Association is a wonderful website to start with. DiabetesSisters.org is another great website, certainly my website. Um, if anybody's into Twitter, you can go on Twitter with the hashtag DOC, which stands for Diabetic Online Community. Uh, there's wonderful spirited um, informational and just support kind of sessions that you can find online, um, even on Facebook. You know, I'm part of a positive pregnancy with diabetes on Facebook, which I find very helpful and nice. So, you know, there, there's a lot of ways that people can engage a lot of resources out there. And, and one thing I do want to say about the book is, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time and effort in diabetes personally and, you know, in things like writing a book. But don't be intimidated if, if you just sort of have diabetes on the back burner. This, this book really is a way to re-engage you in your diabetes, whether it's an initial diagnosis or you've been living with it for 25 years. So there's no right way to be mentally about it. But if you do want to sort of explore your feelings about it, explore how it is maybe affecting your workplace or your relationships or anything else like that. I'd, I'd encourage anybody just to pick up the book or take a look at it on Amazon, uh, and it might appeal to you in a way that, that books haven't before. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. And I guess the, well, you know, be informed. I mean, that's, um, that's, I think that's what you're saying. That's what you're telling us. Dr. Natalie Strand, MD, a physician who's been living with diabetes for over 23 years. Her new book, A Woman's Guide to Diabetes, A Path to Wellness. And you can go to her website amongst the other ones that you mentioned, but drnatstrand.com, which is D-R-N-A-T strand.com. Thanks so much, Dr. Nat. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Welcome back. Uh, My next guest is Mendy Barron. He's a social worker, a CSW social worker, and a teen advocate. Um, he, whether he is speaking directly with teens, parents of teens, or with the media, Mendy is the go-to expert on how to start the conversation on critical issues that impact today's teens. Uh, Mendy has founded several treatment centers geared to teens struggling with addiction and mental disorders, and he is currently the founder and CEO of Evolve Treatment Centers. Um, today, specifically, we're going to be talking about... Uh, Bullying, and uh, you can go to uh, one of his websites. Stop. Bu- well, not, it's not his website, but it, one website <laughs> to go to is stopbullying.gov. Um, how to protect your child from being bullied? Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Mindy. Hi. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. And uh, we're going. You. I mean, I, you. You started and founded these this, these centers for teens. Um, teens with addiction and mental health disorders, and I guess and depression as well, right? Um, yeah. So you are the expert. Um, when let's first talk a little bit about Evolve, your um, organization, and how that came to be, and then we'll get into uh, how to protect your child from being bullied. Sure. Um, Evolve is, is kind of a culmination of, of a lot of different experiences, as you mentioned. Um, I come from a social work background. And, um, as social workers, we're trained to look at people's strengths and kind of build on, on, on that. And um, having worked in the field and done therapy and worked for various centers, I, I, I had this vision of what, what would it take to create kind of a utopia treatment center, a place where kids could go um, and young adults could go and, and not just heal in a clinical environment, but also find growth 
and the ability to move forward. So we launched Evolve, um, and it's been you know very successful, thank God. Yeah, when did you launch it? Uh, Evolve was launched May nineteenth, two thousand fourteen. All right, so this is like a whole new endeavor. Um, this is yeah, yeah, uh, two thousand fourteen. Also, inpatient or outpatient or both. Both. We have two uh, inpatient residential treatment centers, um, and we have two outpatient and what's called partial hospitalization centers. So it's kind of a day program and an evening program, as well as two residential treatment centers. All right. As a social worker, what, you know, and this just was 2014, so uh, I know you've had a lot of experience uh, doing social work and being involved in other kinds of agencies. So why... Um, why addiction and why, specifically, why addiction? I mean, anything in your personal life that either yourself or your family or friends or something that sort of motivated you to get, to, to, um, be interested in creating these centers, uh, treatment centers for teens? You know, there, there's, I, 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 you know, our centers deal with addiction and mental health and also at least 50% of our centers deal specifically with teens and I think the motivation for that really comes from myself as a teen. You know, I think uh, personal struggles often lead to people entering the field. Um, I, I saw a lot uh, in my youth um, and had a, a lot of experiences that led me to think, you know what, I, I do have sort of a gift for helping people and navigating things. I've seen struggles. I've been part of struggles. Um, and, and, and the beautiful thing about working with teens is that you can really see change. You can impact them and, and literally change the trajectory of a life. Not, not that adults are a lost cause, mind you, but... Um, with teens, you know, a little bit of insight, a little bit of input, and, and, and work and love, and, and you can really see the entire trajectory of where they're going change um, for the rest of their lives, which is very rewarding. All right, so these Evolve Centers, I think, what, you have two of them? They're in California, one in Oha and one in Bel Air? We've got uh, four centers, one in Bel Air, uh, one in Topanga, California, which is a, a beautiful five-acre equine facility, so they do a lot of equine therapy. There's horses on site. Um, there's uh, a residential treatment center in Ojai and an outpatient center in Ojai. Uh, and one of the things that uh, struck my, I mean, I'm looking at your bio here, and it says, you know, you, you're the son of a rabbi and the eldest of 11 children, besides being <laughs> yeah. a part-time rock musician, a cantor, and a father of two. So that's quite a bio. I mean, how? Just, I'm just really curious. The son of a rabbi, the eldest of eleven children. Well, I guess that gives you a lot of experience in terms of right? teenagers. Yeah, yeah, family work. <laughs> What's it like being the eldest of eleven children? It's a it's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, I, I think people hear eleven children. They and they, and they first thing they do is pull out a calendar and start calculating. Um, but but it's a beautiful thing ha- having a family, having a family unit. Um, being able to to have you know a variety of siblings at different ages and 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 the unity is just really amazing. Um, you know, we all support each other. Um, you know, going on family trips in a 15-passenger van. Uh, it, I think my family, we would have killed each other, but it wasn't as large as yours. But still, that's that's a challenge. <clears throat> oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm I'm at two, and we're going to take it take it step by step. <laughs> I don't know if I'm heading to 11 myself, but God bless my parents. They they handle it magnificently. That's fantastic. That's great. So, okay, the eldest of 11 children. Now, you have two children. Um, so, yeah. you know, okay, well, you have the credentials, I guess the professional, the academic credentials, as well as the personal credentials to run these kinds of, this kind of a facility. But, um, all right, bullying. Um, I mean, this is a, 
this is something, it seems to me, and I've interviewed a lot of people on the show who are involved in, you know, psychologists, social workers, doctors, bullying, politicians. It seems to me that things are getting worse in terms of kids being bullied and suicides and all those kinds. Not better. I mean, even though we have paid, we're paying more attention to it and, we, you know, we give classes, there are educational classes for parents and teachers and administrators, <coughs> are we getting anywhere? We, you know, are we preventing um, these incidents, bullying incidents that often lead to horrific things like a student or, or a child committing suicide? You know, there's two things to look at. You know, bullying definitely isn't getting better, and I'll pick up on this in one moment. I mean, there's, there's, there's something to be said for the fact that in every generation we look at the generation before and say, you know, things were better, now things are changing. I don't necessarily think things are, are drastically worse than they were before. I do think that the exposure is far greater. I think we see it um, more often, and because we see it more often, it's being perpetuated more often. For example, um, take something like bullying, right? Your traditional um, uh, bully, right? We'll, we'll pick a 90s cliche setting. Biff is a tall, blonde, physically fit kid who's beating up on Michael, who's got big plastic glasses and, and, and a pocket protector. Um, Michael gets picked on in the schoolyard and a couple kids see it. Michael goes home ashamed. Next day he comes back and he's got a face of three or four people who he, who he was embarrassed of. Today, the person doesn't have to have physical prowess. Michael doesn't have to be a geek. One quick photo that hits Instagram, and now instead of having to face the three or four people you had to face before, you have to face 10,000 people. Um, and even if those 10,000 people maybe aren't checking their Instagram, the perception for Michael, the kid is being bullied, is that it's on the Internet and the whole world can see it. So the damage is exponential, um, and, and, and there's that, that feeling from the kids who are being bullied, like, I've got nowhere left to hide. I, I'm fully exposed. I'm naked to the world. What's left? Um, the second big component is, is that when someone does something, like, God forbid, commit suicide or take other people's lives, the media goes ahead and exposes that exponentially. And so there's this feeling of, well, okay, I should do this because I want to be remembered when I'm gone. I want people to know what I'm feeling. Um, when you look at the, you know, there, there was a young person just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, who ran into traffic, uh, transgender youth, and, and, and the message left um, for, for everyone else was, hey, I'm killing myself so you guys can all see what's going on. Um, just this past week in, I think, Arundel County, Maryland, um, a, a kid was taken out of school because they found a note that had a list of who they wanted to kill at school for being bullied. Um, so, so the exposure that we give it also kind of perpetuates the issue. All right, so you stated the problem, and I guess uh, stated the problem in a way that we can understand why perhaps things aren't getting better or, it's be, or that... The, the, the bullying is exacerbated. That's the problem. So what can we do about it? Because that's not going to stop. I mean, Instagram, social media, all of those kinds of things. <clears throat> so what do you do? You know, I, I think it comes down to our response. You know, in, in every, I, I've been reading, you know, the detailed articles that have come out. So, so in the past month, in the past, let's just say five months, six months, we had a kid um, shoot up a school in Santa Barbara. We had a kid shoot up a school in Washington State, we had a young man take his own life. We had a young transgender take their own life. Um, and then we had this kid in Maryland who, who's threatening to take out schools. In every single situation, when you look at the media's response, the first thing you do is blow it out of proportion in the sense that they very highly focus on the kid. Okay, we got this kid, and in Santa Barbara, he has Asperger's. Okay, so now you're going to tell me something about Asperger's, and we're going to talk about what we can do to help people with mental health disorders and address it. 
and address how they get bullied. No, they don't do that. They, they blow up Asperger's, and then they go ahead and vilify the mental health disorder, which pushes people to no longer want to actually speak up about their issues, because why would you want to be vilified for having these issues? Um, same thing happened in Washington State. So the media goes ahead and takes a mental health disorder, blows up the kids' perspective, so the, the tension that, was, that they were seeking they get. They don't do anything about the mental health disorder because they don't offer any insight into what to do about it. And then every single time that bullying came up, you see the school say, oh, we knew they were being bullied, uh, you know, Washington State, in middle of the shooting. There's an active shooting in Washington State, and the big headline on CNN or one of these uh, uh, news uh, reporting agencies was, um, shooting in school, kids say that the kid was bullied. So we know there's an issue, but the media, once again, no longer offers any solutions for bullying. Um, and, and, and so instead of, instead of kind of helping the issue, we're perpetuating it. And then the schools themselves, I, I continue to be disappointed in the lack of responsiveness. You know, you would think with the amount of issues that we're seeing and the fact that they take place in school and the fact that most of bullying takes place in school and the fact that kids are in school for half their lives until they're 18, that there would be more impetus for the schools to take charge um, in dealing with bullying. I think if, if schools treated bullying uh, in the same way they treated sexual abuse or, or drug dealing in school, we'd see stronger results if we had stronger consequences if the school's new football field or new computer lab was tied to their statistics on bullying going down. I think we'd but see maybe, more so results. What do you do? I mean, I'm, I'm going to take, you know, you, you talk about the media's responsibility. I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not so sure. Is the media really responsible? I mean, it seems to me that that's a little bit too, to me, um, I mean, the media is going to do what it's always done. It wants a good story. It wants people to read. There's a whole lot of reasons why they do that, uh, you know, freedom of speech. But when you actually specifically have bullying going on at your school and administrators and teachers and parents are aware of it, isn't it, why aren't they doing something about it? I mean, sort of start where the problem begins. Oh, I agree 100%. I, I, I think the schools absolutely need to take action. Um, and I do hear the perspective on the media and the media telling a story, but at the same time, I think, I think we as, without being cheesy, we as a people should, should, should push a little bit to get some responsiveness. I mean, if we see it, it's all right to, blow, to, 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 to respond to a story, but also practically, you know, to, to offer some answers or offer some insight, I think if we were excited to hear that and interested in it, it would come out. I mean, shows, shows like yours, other shows that I've been on, I mean, these are shows that are practically trying to expose the answers, and people do listen, people tune in. Um, I think if we push for responsiveness on that end, we could get it, too. Yeah, so you have to attack it on all levels, right? It's not just... 100%. Yeah, okay. Um, let's... All right, so you're on the show. We're attacking it on that level. Let's get back <laughs> to the the teachers, the administrators, what's actually happening in school and why you think they... Why don't they do anything about it? Are they... I mean, when they are aware that a, a kid is being bullied. <clears throat> You know, I think the, the challenge for schools in, in facing the issues, number one, uh, like I mentioned, the funding isn't there. Um, we're not offering as, as much incentive for bullying as we are for, for other issues and other concerns that are coming up. Not that the other concerns aren't serious, um, but if we were to financially incentivize it, again, the offering grants or subsidies or things uh, that schools want, such as football fields, computer labs, or other things that they're very excited about, I think we would see more results. Um, I think it's harder to engage the family unit, which is really required in bullying. You can't just address bullying on its face. I mean, a, a lot of bullies, it, it, we already know that a lot of bullies have been bullied. We do know that a lot of it is perpetuated in the home. So being able to engage parents um, and get them to stop is very challenging. I don't know if you saw the, the video that was going out last week about the dad who went to YouTube um, to, to kind of call out the bullies, the, 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 the kids who bullied his daughter. 
um, he said, you know, the school wasn't doing anything and, and we couldn't get the other parents to respond. And so he made a video and very controversial. And I'm not necessarily saying what he did was right, but the school wasn't able to engage the parents of the bully to the extent that was needed to make it stop. Um, and I think uh, mental health education, um, more rigorous standards regarding uh, how we respond to it. Again, if, if you know that if your kid continues to bully, you may be looking at, I don't know, repeating a grade or, or not being able to get into the school that you want um, or looking at fines or things of that nature, I think we'd be able to get parents to respond as well. Um, right now, you know, like, like you mentioned, StopBullying.gov and various websites offer insight. We should offer insight into bullying. We should teach kids what to do, and that's all wonderful. But practically, there's no uniform response uh, system put in place with consequences for bullying either. Yeah, and I think that another piece. Of, okay, now you. We, I think we need to also go back to this whole thing about social media. With parents and schools, uh, don't really have that much control over that, as you say. I mean, uh, I mean, the kid can be on a on your computer, and you realize ten thousand, or you feel like ten thousand people are bullying you. And I, I don't know how you get away from that. Um, you can't keep children or kids or teenagers away from from the internet. So how do you? How do you you know? How do you respond to that? That I mean, that's that's the age-old problem. As new technology arises and new ways to communicate are developed, we, you know, we have to catch on. I mean, the expectation isn't that you let your kids do whatever they want on the internet. You know, we we try to restrict a lot of things on the internet from our kids. There's no reason why we can't at least put a set of standards. I mean, I don't mean to be a helicopter and, and say that you have to log into your kid's Facebook page every day and read it, but certainly be present. And certainly have a requirement of your kid that, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you the space you need, but if I suspect there's an issue, you can be sure I'm going to log in and look around. Um, because your kid's safety is at risk. It's not, it's not just bullying. When they're on the internet themselves, you're talking about uh, sexual predators. You're talking about, uh, obviously, bullying. You're talking about kids being able to purchase drugs online nowadays, um, guns online nowadays. I mean, you certainly, we have to fine-tune our, our ability to um, monitor the interactions of our kids on the internet. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that because I think sometimes we talk about monitoring and controlling, and but this, the other piece is that if you ha- if you're you are monitoring and you're watching what your kids are doing on the net, you have to sit down and I think, and as a social worker, you have to sit down and talk to them about it. I mean, it's not just saying you can never go to that site again, or uh, you know you can't use your computer or whatever it is, or being punitive about those kinds of things. I think. It, you have to sit down and talk about what's happening. I mean, I hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. The, the the one thing that that you mentioned with with the communication, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you can tell you that you're a social worker. Um, one of the things we we always always kind of push on parents, even when they come to treatment, and in treatment we deal with you know bullying and and depression, and anxiety, and suicidal ideation, and drug use. But the one common denominator in dealing with issues, especially with teens, is communication. And we always push to families, you, know, you need to start the conversation. And you don't need to start the conversation the minute that, you know, you know hey, son, I found this in your backpack, or, or I, I discovered you were doing this online. Ideally, you're starting the conversation long before the issues arise. You're starting even before they become a team. You're setting the stage so that when they want to talk to you, they can. So you're talking about sports or weather, or you're setting a date night with your kid, or you're putting the cell phone down during dinner so you can communicate, and, and you're in touch with them. And you start the conversation persistently enough that when there's an issue, you can actually sit down. Because as you know, if you just sit down to address the issue, you don't always get the best response because you're coming in punitively. Um, so, so I always encourage parents that even if you don't think your kid has any issues, set the stage so when these things arise, you can really address it with them. 
Right. So that's from the very beginning. When your child is two years old, they begin to talk. I mean, that's you're setting the stage for them to feel comfortable to talk to you when they need to talk to you. And it's always it's not always when you need to talk to them. It's when they need exactly. to talk to you. You need to be one has to be as a parent be available. Hundred percent. And 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 you know what? With the new technology and with the social media, the parents are just as guilty. A lot of parents are, are, are content to, to watch. As long as my kid's okay and they're on the computer and they're not shouting and they're fine and I can kind of get some downtime, this is great. Um, or, or the parents themselves are off on the phone or, or on social media. So, so it's something to think about, certainly. So how can you turn it around, use social media, computers, <clears throat> cell phones, so that they work for you instead of against you? Because they're here, I mean, and, and they're great. And uh, So how can you help that to enhance the communication, say, between par- parents and children? You know, that's an excellent question. I, I don't have a straight answer for that. I, I, I have seen some things and even some things that we're utilizing currently in our treatment centers. For instance, interactive apps, um, journaling apps where they can kind of talk about their experiences. Even if they can't necessarily verbalize it, they can type it up. And it's like a, it's like a live journal between two people. Um, even sitting down with your kid and playing a game. If, if social media or gaming is something you want to do, well, at least interact with your kid. Um, but I think that's something we have to work on, and I'd be excited to see products that, that really bring people together. Yeah, those are good examples. Uh, you talk about um, journaling apps, for instance. That's a great way to do it, because sometimes the parents and the child you know, have difficulty verbalizing or talking. But much easier to write it down and get a, get a response. That's a, that's, I think that's, a, that's one that I hadn't specifically heard about. But when you're talking about other interactive apps, what would those be? Or I don't know. The, 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 it, I'd like to see it. <laughs> I think journaling was a good example that I could come up with. But I, you know, there's a market for that. I, I would think parents would uh, would be very intrigued at apps that could enhance interactions with each other. Yeah, it, um, and and then you can communicate. Well, obviously, you know, the kid, you can communicate with your kid or your child. They don't have to obviously be with you. In you know, it's virtual, so you, it's. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for communicating, and kids can also feel comfortable about being, I mean, I don't know if this works well or not. I was going to ask you this, but, like, kids get in situations at school or at somebody else's house, something's going on that they don't, they know is wrong. They can communicate with their parents. They can text their parents and say, hey, you know, you know, somebody's drinking or doing drugs. I don't want to be here. That's a, and if they feel comfortable doing that, I think that's an advantage, certainly one that we didn't have. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and that, I can say, is an app I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is that, that is something I'm, I'm actively working on developing is sort of for, for that, from that piece, the, the, uh, the safety piece. Yeah. Um, so, 100%, so you're already, yeah. Yeah, that's already in the mix. Well, I think that's a great idea because, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very practical. I mean, because while we're talking about kids communicating with one another and the parents know, don't know what they're saying, but how about getting them to communicate with you and, uh, well, I'm going to wait. Well, when's your app coming out? <laughs> it's going to be a few months, but it, it, it's very exciting, and that is one component of it is exactly that. I mean, wouldn't it be novel if, if a kid felt safe enough to reach out to their parents in a situation, flag where they are, and, 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 uh, and, and have a parent assist them? I mean, that, that would be really cool. Yeah. Um, we also have to have, I think what you mentioned earlier, though, that basic trust that I can, you know, I can text my mother and say, you know, somebody sitting here, you know, taking out their parents' liquor and I want to come home without feeling that their parents are going to go after them or punish them or, you know, they have to feel comfortable in being able to do that, which starts back with the communication, either talking or journaling or both, way back in their relationship, right? A hundred percent. 
Yep. We, we only have a minute left, so we have to say goodbye. It was really great talking to you, Mendy Barron, um, and Evolve Treatment Centers, which are in California. Mendy is a social worker, and he is the CEO of Evolve Treatment Centers. We have to keep an eye on you. So what website can we go to? I'm going to be looking for that app, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know when it comes out. Yeah. Um, it's www.evolvetreatment.com, E-V-O-L-V-E. Um, you can email me directly with any questions, Mendy, M-E-N-D-I-B, at evolvetreatment.com. I do write as an expert for psychology today, so I have some blogs you can check out over there. Um, we have blogs on our website, and obviously we have the matching Facebook pages. Terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Yep, you too. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.